Hey, it's Tom Switzer here from RN's Between the Lines, and I hope you're coping well with the coronavirus and you and your friends are weathering the storms, both health and financial. Now, coming up on the program today, we'll be chatting with Walter Russell Mead to talk about COVID-19. Now, Walter is the author of a Wall Street Journal column. I always read it. But a recent headline sparked China's decision to ban journalists from the major US press outlets. The headline was, China is the sick man of Asia. It really upset Beijing's sensibilities. We'll hear more from Walter very soon. Plus, Samantha Maiden, the veteran Canberra Press Gallery journalist, she'll be telling us about her new book on Labor's secret history. Or rather, it was a secret history of a Labor Party fiasco. Stay with us for that. Well, we're two months into the coronavirus crisis now, and we're seeing quite different policy responses and leadership approaches in different nations. In the United States, universities started shutting down campuses a couple of weeks ago, and state governments from California to New York, they've been declaring states of emergency and closing schools, restaurants and pubs. This week, President Trump started to get on board, declaring the virus an invisible enemy. But is it too little too late? Joining us for an update is Walter Russell Mead. He's Professor of Foreign Affairs at Bard College in New York, a scholar at the Hudson Institute in Washington, and a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I read him every Wednesday, always must reading. Walter, welcome to Between the Lines. It's great to be here, Tom. Now, closed schools at the start of the week. Uh, This is swiftly followed by the closure of nightclubs, movie theatres, concert venues. A good decision in your view? I think it had to be done. You know, you look at what has been happening in Italy and some other places, and uh, it it does seem that that sort of social distancing is the best way we have to reduce the the peak number of cases. Yeah, well, you've been critical of President Trump's handling of the crisis. You had a column last week on this arguing that the virus, rather than Joe Biden or, or Bernie Sanders... Um, they, the virus will soon become Trump's greatest adversary. Has that happened? Well, I think in some ways, you know, it's, it remains to be seen. Trump has come a long way since last week in his response. Mm. And I think he's, he's, you know, whatever else one thinks about Trump, he's, he's very creative politically. And I think he now understands in a way he didn't that actually proclaiming this to be a serious emergency and then riding that uh, wave is the best way for him to position himself. I think previously he was still thinking, I have a beautiful economy, I have a terrific stock market, and now this, you know, this epidemic is going to try to wreck everything. I need to try to keep up confidence and keep people from panicking. And that, that did not go well, I think. Yeah, and I noticed that some prominent commentators who are supporters of Donald Trump, like Tucker Carlson from Fox News, uh, he's also done a 180-degree about-face on this issue. So Trump's just reading public opinion, I suspect, isn't he? He's listening to the scientists. Uh, they are, you know, it, it, he, he has this panel. I, I, I doubt that he had spent much time before the epidemic sort of holding up on pandemics just in case we had one. But now that it's become a problem, he's clearly talking to the experts, and what they have to say is very sober. The Dow Jones has just taken a hammering. I know it's been up and down, but really, we are in 
uh, well, beyond bear market territory. Um, some economists are even predicting it will it'll take a decade or more for the economy to recover. Uh, is there another way to do this? Because I, I asked, because earlier this week, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands said that his country is taking a herd immunity strategy and resisting the lockdowns in place across the rest of Europe. What are your thoughts on that? Each country has its own circumstances. Holland is a very densely populated country. I think it has the greatest population density of any country in the world, possibly with the exception of Singapore. And so, you know, they're obviously they're in their own situation, and I wouldn't presume to tell them what to do. I do notice that in the UK, Boris Johnson had been working with the herd immunity concept, and the UK has flipped away from that. Um, so there, there seems to be a trend toward thinking that that may not work, at least in the case of larger countries. This is Tom Switzer, and I'm with Walter Russell Mead. He's the Professor of Foreign Affairs at Bard College, columnist for the Wall Street Journal. You're on Between the Lines on RN. I should stress now's as good a time as any is to say that about a month or so ago, uh, Walter, you wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal on China and coronavirus. Now, the headline, which you did not write, was uh, something along the lines that China is the sick man of Asia. Now, in response, Beijing banned the Wall Street Journal correspondence. Well, as it happens this week, China has banished other US journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, Voice of America. What do you make of Beijing's response? I think it's, it, it was clear to us even at the beginning that China was using the incident over the headline to create a crisis. Uh, for one, you know, they, they sort of were acting like, uh, oh, this irresistible public opinion in China, people are outraged. The Wall Street Journal has been banned in China for many years. No one is reading it. No one would have even known about this, but they chose to publicize it. So I think part of what we're seeing is that China's response to the coronavirus epidemic seems to be a little bit like its, its response to the 2008 financial crisis. As really this is a sign that the U.S. is weak and in recession, and here's an opportunity for China to create a, a you know, to, to push out onto the world stage even farther. And I think the ideological mobilization that we're seeing in China the closing down of the situation of the country to the foreign press, all of these things seem to be part of a pattern. Yeah, and meanwhile, China says it's it's all getting better, and Wuhan, the epicenter of the crisis, uh, that's that's been reopened. Some might say this is all just propaganda. Now, you've written a piece in the Wall Street Journal this week on the geopolitics of the pandemic, and you say that Beijing is exploiting the chaos of the pandemic. Meanwhile, with the world economy on nose in a nose drive, some might say it's a good time for China to come into more markets and uh, be more assertive. Well, it's been interesting to see, you know, the, the disinformation that we're hearing about how somehow the U.S. is responsible for the the virus in China. This is the sort of thing we should hear all the time from Moscow mm-hmm. during the Cold War. And I apologize for being old enough to to remember the Cold War, but. Um, you know, the, the kind of systemic lies and then the network of agents in place around the world that Moscow would use to propagate these lies could at times be very effective. And the Chinese Communist Party is resurrecting some of these techniques. Obviously, President Putin in, in Russia has also gone back 
the old playbook. And so we are beginning to see what I guess my friend Frank Fukuyama said we would never see, an era of global ideological competition. Yes, yes, so much for the end of history. Uh, and on China, I mean, we've had a few guests on this program and elsewhere on Radio National, Walter, and early on, it looked as though the virus had the real potential to destabilise Xi Jinping's presidency. Uh, where do you think he stands domestically now? Look, I think um, it's a mistake to think that natural disasters necessarily weaken powerful authoritarian rulers. I mean, look at Stalin, who presided over a decade of starvation and mass death. Uh, what, it, what it often does, though, is it forces them to become even more autocratic and arbitrary because they can't allow the truth, just like Stalin couldn't allow the truth out about how terrible the, um, uh, the collectivization was, just how Mao could never allow the world or China China. To, to know how destructive uh, the Cultural Revolution or the Great Leap Forward have been, the millions and millions of people dying uh, by his policy. So I think Xi Jinping now has a skeleton in his own closet. And so I think what we have to expect is we will see a lot of efforts to keep certain ideas out of circulation in China. Now, last week we had on the program Walter Kishore Mabubani, the distinguished Singaporean intellectual and former diplomat. Very provocative arguments. He was saying that the Chinese people, by and large, are welcoming the reassertion of Xi's legitimacy because uh, of the history of national, the century of national humiliation. Uh, the Chinese yearn for strong, centralised leadership, and that's what's getting China through this crisis. And this is what, according to Marble Barney, means that China will be a, a more assertive global superpower, and that's ultimately a good thing for China and the region. Your response? Well, the first thing is this would not be the first time we've heard a distinguished Singapore, Singaporean make strong arguments why authoritarianism is really the best way to go. Uh, that's uh, that's that's kind of stock in trade for Singapore, and you, you tend to hear that way, you know, no matter what. So in that sense, the Singaporean intellectual says what Singaporeans say is not news. Uh, but I would say that um, Stalin was popular in the Soviet Union, even in the middle of some of the famines and repressions. Uh, in, in an odd sense. The very direness of their party made people rally to a powerful figure. You know, history is full of popular dictators uh, who who become very, very effective at using events to tighten their grip on power, make them seem like the indispensable man. I think many of us who know China and know the Chinese have seen very different people, very sort of you know, open-minded, free-thinking, thoughtful, scholarly, deep people who, for whom uh, this kind of official ideology, converging on cult of personality, is is repugnant. But these voices are being silenced now. Walter, it's been great to connect again. It's been too long an interval. Stay healthy and safe. Thanks so much for being on ABC Radio today. All right. Thank you, Tom. Walter Russell Mead, he's Professor of Foreign Affairs at Bard College and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. 
Well, since the coalition's re-election last year, several books on federal politics have been published. Remember Nikki Sava, whose book was originally called Highway to Hell, the coup that destroyed Malcolm Turnbull and left the Liberals in ruins. Well, David Crow, he's author of Venom, Vendettas, Betrayals and the Price of Power. The problem, as you can tell here, is that these books were essentially written before the election. Virtually all the pundits just assumed that Labor would win. <laughs> yet the magic of politics, extraordinary, isn't it? Scott Morrison's shock victory prompted a total rebranding. As a result, those authors desperately went back to the drawing board and their publishers changed their titles to reflect the result. Well, two other journalists have written books to explain the election result and they both pretty much started from scratch. Aaron Patrick, you may recall our segment with him late last year. He had the surprise party. And now there's Samantha Maidens, Party Animals, The Secret History of a Labor Fiasco. G'day, Sam. Welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. Now, you've talked with key Labor figures, including Bill Shorten. So how do you account for Labor losing the unlosable election? Well, for me, there had to be more to it than, you know, this idea of Scott Morrison just being this political genius who turned up in Queensland in a baseball cap and everybody loved it. There must be more to what Labor did wrong. What did they do wrong? What did they do right? And that's why I wanted to write the book, because there have been all these great books. And, you know, I love all those other books. Uh, Nikki Savva's got a fantastic book um, that's very focused on the Liberal Party um, and, um, you know, a lot of their bloodletting. But to, for my purposes, there hadn't really been a book that looked at the Labor Party. They have to be part of the equation. So for me, that was the question I wanted to answer. How did Labor lose what everybody thought was the unlosable election? And uh, what's the conclusion? Well, one of the conclusions that I come to in the book was that uh, they really awakened the sleeping giant of risk in the Australian population. And that, you know, voters are smart. You know, uh, a lot of voters, particularly low-income workers, they're very exposed to the economy. They sense when things are going wrong with the economy faster than perhaps, you know, people that are in very safe and secure, you know, middle-class jobs are. You know, when the economy starts going bad, they're very sensitive to that and they know it right away. And I think a lot of those people were very nervous about some of the Labor Party's policies. So I think that, you know, for true believers, um, and, you know, let's not pretend there aren't a lot of them. I mean, basically, the Labor Party did get a majority of votes in some states. Uh, they were left sort of scratching their head going, what happened there? And maybe maybe these other people got it wrong. And mm. were they stupid? Did they kind of find out things on Facebook? Did they not understand it? What if they did? What if those people sensed that the economy was about to turn bad and were worried about those policies? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's got to be a question that we, we look at as well. A sleeping giant of risk. You write in the book, the opposition had dared to awaken the sleeping giant of Australia's democracy, voters' deep primal fear of risk. And you quote Peter Barron, he's the veteran Labor advisor to Bob Hawke and uh, Neville Rand, among others. He says risk was central to Labor's fate. So Sam, it brings to mind, and I, you make this point in your introduction, <laughs> the similarities between Bill Shorten and John Hewson, another opposition leader who lost the unlosable election 25 years years earlier. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of similarities. I mean, there's differences as well, but there are a lot of similarities in the sense that, you know, Houston was expected to win. People thought that Paul Keating was, you know, on the ropes and that he was in trouble. John Houston went to that election with such an extensive array of policies. Um, he wanted to come clean with the Australian public, just as the Labor Party did. You know, he had policies on industrial relations. He had policies on the GST. 
But when he got down into the reeds, he remember he couldn't explain how the GST would apply it to a birthday cake. And I think there's some similarities there in the way that Bill Shorten couldn't explain how much his climate change policies would cost. Now, there's good reasons why that would depend on a whole range of factors, but he couldn't come up with a simple answer. And, you know, too late, I think he came up with the answer that doing nothing yeah. was you know, worse than, than, you know, the alternative. Yeah, some of our listeners may recall uh, in early 2018, I think it was in late January, early February, uh, we interviewed uh, the Sydney Morning Herald journalist Peter Harcher and John Hewson himself. And the question I raised to both of them, this was the whole segment, uh, could Bill Shorten lose the unlosable election? Because <laughs> it was based on a Harcher column who raised that prospect. And John Hewson, for the record, made it very clear that this was nothing like 1993 and Bill Shorten would win comfortably, but we all get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's uh, let's talk about the campaign itself, or even just before the campaign, because this is one of your extraordinary revelations, Sam. Uh, the last question time before the PM called the election. This is a reference to an old accusation. Tell us about that. Well... All political leaders of both political stripes engage in a bit of psychological warfare, a bit of psychops. But the thing that was really fascinating to me is that Scott Morrison dropped this little warning into question time and nobody really picked it up. So most people uh, that are listening are probably aware that, you know, very early on when Bill Shorten was elected Labor leader, uh, it was quite a traumatic time for him because uh, almost as soon as he was elected to the leadership, uh, a woman that he had known many, many years ago, 20 years ago, uh, came out and made claims that he had sexually assaulted her when she was a teenager and he was a teenager at a Labor Party youth camp. Now, that was fully investigated by the Victorian police. Uh, they said that there was no charges going to be laid, no prospect of a conviction. And so, to some extent, you know, they might have hoped that the matter was closed. But in that last question time uh, before Parliament rose, the last question time before Bill Shorten rose in the chamber to give his budget and reply speech. Scott Morrison said, you know, it's been so long since the Labor Party has had a, uh, a surplus. You know, I don't know what you were doing back in the day, the last time the Labor Party had a surplus, running around at all those vanguard camps. Now, what's a vanguard camp? The vanguard camp was the, the place at which this event was, uh, this allegation was meant to have occurred. Uh, so he was clearly signalling to Bill Shorten just making a reference to those rape claims. Bill Shorten knew exactly what he was talking about. Uh, his whole office flinched and they had reason to be particularly suspicious of it because they had had these, beginning to have these very strange and unusual contacts with this man that they described somewhat ludicrously as Deep Throat, the, the old Watergate <laughs> name. Um, and uh, th this Liberal Party person with Liberal Party connections was coming to them and telling them, that, um, you know, just giving you a tip that this is going to blow up during the election, it's going to destabilise. Okay, so, so Morrison here was essentially telling Shorten in question time that he remembered the rape claim mm. and that perhaps the Liberals might ensure that the Australian public was reminded too. Could you say this is all understandable given that the allegations, you know, they, they surely bound to resurface during the Me Too movement? Well, that was the concern that because of the Me Too movement that this may be, you know, reignited. I think that the Liberal Party and Scott Morrison as well were incredibly reluctant to go anywhere on these allegations. They didn't end up bringing them up. But there was a lot of hints dropped where I think that um, the Labor Party felt that Scott Morrison was just trying to mess with Bill Shorten's head. And behind the scenes, there was a lot of people, advocates uh, for Cathy Sheriff, 
um, who was the woman who made the original allegations, pushing journalists to to revisit this story and to look at it and an enormous amount of work going on behind the scenes that was unseen by voters and the majority of the media uh, by Bill Shorten's office to stop this from occurring. And, and what I reveal in my book is that they actually had a legal team set up in Melbourne. They had barristers uh, engaged. They had legal advice on defamation. They looked at whether or not overseas Facebook groups pushing this could basically be done on foreign influence laws. There was just an enormous amount of effort and uh, anxiety about this within the Labor Party yes. office. Some people say, oh, well, it never came out, so it was all paranoia. Well, you know, maybe it was paranoia, maybe it wasn't, but um, there's no doubt to me that it was consuming. Yes, you make that um, very clear. The, the Shorten office. And you say that Shorten generally believed that the news tabloids like the Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, they'd run with the story. And you say that the controversy so upset Shorten that he performed poorly during the campaign. This obviously helped Morrison. But in fairness, at the time, Sam, most journalists believed that Shorten had performed very well against Morrison in the campaign. The consensus was that Shorten himself won the three election debates. Sure, but, I mean, that's why I wrote the book, right, is to tell the, the real story behind the scenes. And, you know, I think there was a, a widespread view that he was a bit wobbly and scratchy during those first early weeks. Bill Shorten does not believe that he performed badly or that he was unable to perform because of this allegation, but people around him do and, like, I've spoken to so many people that worked for the Labor Party in the head office and his office at the time who talk about, you know, how this at various points did consume people. They were really worried about it. So, you know, both things can be right, you know. I mean, he did perform quite well in some of those debates, but um, there was clearly deep concerns, and I write about it in the book, that Paul Keating and Bill Kelsey, when they're giving in these pep talks in the lead-up to various debates, that they were worried about how... You know, I think defensive he was when he was asked, for example, the questions about climate change. It was quite an aggressive press pack, which is not unusual in these elections. But he was getting really scrappy and arguing mm. with journalists and there was concerns about how he was performing. Samantha Maiden is my guest and we're talking about her new book, Party Animals, The Secret History of a Labor Fiasco. And if you're working from home during coming weeks and you need something to read, uh, I'd encourage you to read this book. I loved it. Uh, now, keeping with this News Corp theme, uh, you reveal that Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister, he repeatedly pressed Shorten to launch a royal commission into News Corp. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, look, this is just a bit of fun and colour, really. But I just love the fact that Kevin Rudd was absolutely <laughs> mad on the text, full of advice. But, and by the know, way, this is the same Rudd, and you and I worked together at The Australian for several years, Sam. This is the same Kevin Rudd who courted News Corp, especially The Oz, before he challenged oh. Beasley in 2006 <laughs> and faced Howard in 2007. I suspect there were years when the former editor of The Australian, Chris Mitchell, couldn't get this bloke off the phone. But, <laughs> you know, like he, I mean, what I write about in the book, you know, is that um, he goes on about, you know, Cole Allen, who's quite a sort of legendary tabloid editor. And, you know, it was only not that long ago that he was busted at scores, remember, but actually sort of improved his public image a bit um, after it was revealed that he'd sort of attended a strip joint and it was all a bit hazy because he was so regarded as so bookish and nerdy yeah. that people thought, oh, maybe he's not as nerdy as we thought. Remember that Kevin um, but, Kerry O'Brien interview on 7.30? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, this same guy who's literally hanging out in strip clubs in New York with these news corp executives, you know, 10 years ago is now saying that they're sort of threats to democracy. I suppose, once again, both things can be true. But, you know, the interesting <laughs> thing was that, you know, he was really full on about that. 
And the interesting thing is also the relationship between the Labor Party and News Corp, you know, was quite strained at various points. And, you know, there is no no doubt that they felt that they were getting absolutely hammered by the tabloids, that enormous amounts of, of work and effort were going in every day to fueling these these requests that they regarded as hit jobs. You know, I mean, mm. the, the reporters would no doubt regard them as journalism, but they definitely felt that they were under siege. And, you know, the other thing that I think is relevant about the text messages is after the election, Kevin Rudd was very quick to say, oh, I saw that all coming, and, of course, they weren't going to win, and they made a terrible error, uh, and, you know, Bill Shorten wasn't popular, and maybe they should have changed to Anthony Albanese. But during the election, what these texts show is that he, he did think Shorten was going to win, and he was telling him what to do when he did win, which involved a, a Royal Commission for News Corp. Now, you have a few other revelations in your book, Party Animals. Um, one is uh, highlighting the days, the short period of time between policy and announcement. Labor would take policy to shadow Cabinet just days before it was announced. Extraordinary. I also found it interesting, Sam, how Labor's dirt unit on Bronwyn Bishop, this is over the helicopter controversy, uh, Susan Lee, uh, that ended in her resignation from Cabinet at the time. Both those Labor dirt unit stories, they led to Walkley Award-winning stories. <laughs> yeah, and look, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, these were good stories that needed to be told, right? And I think that most voters and most people in the public uh, were not impressed that Bronwyn Bishop was catching a helicopter to Geelong for a Liberal Party fundraiser. But the intriguing thing to me was how the Labor Party and particularly Bill Shorten's office adapted to what was a pretty hostile media environment sometimes. And they did that by giving the media stories. And for me, it was really fascinating that, you know, these are two of the biggest scandals to hit the Abbott government. And they were really orchestrated and the research material they were put together by the Labor Party. And then the Labor Party kind of would stand back and act as if it had nothing to do with them and then they would come out the next day and be all over it and press it really hard, which then would give that story that rolling momentum to turn it into a day-by-day mm. pressure cooker of a story. And we should stress that these dirt units are on both sides, not just these da- Labor dirt units, but the, you document this Liberal dirt unit on Bill Shorten with a controversial donor. There was a photo of Shorten and a controversial Chinese donor, and you make the point that the Liberals obtained that damning vision from a wedding that the Liberals also attended. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, after the election, they were sort of laughing about it, right? But, you know, this stuff was all packaged up mm. and it would, you know, it would drop. Here's the photo of Bill Shorten at the at the wedding of the band donor. And of course, um, when you ask them, where did you get that picture? It was from the liberal <laughs> who was sitting behind. Okay. Now, finally, the relationship between Shorten and Anthony Albanese, his uh, successor, you say it was marinated in deep mistrust and Shorten had confided to friends that he spent six years, these are the words, looking over my shoulder. Why was Shorten so paranoid when the Labor Party has changed its rules now about removing leaders? It's more difficult now to remove leaders. So why was Shorten so paranoid about Albanese? Well, rules can be changed. And I think that um, there was no doubt in Labor Party ranks that if Bill Shorten had lost one or more of those by-elections in the lead-up to the federal election, something was going to happen. They were preparing for that. Um, certainly, I think Bill Shorten very much expected to be challenged after the 2016 election, and they very much prepared for that. And then he sort of surprised everyone by doing so well. Indeed. But, um, you know, I think there's a real sense in the Labor Party that they would have been luckier to lose one of those by-elections, but maybe they would have then recalibrated, perhaps made some changes to franking credits and negative gearing, 
or perhaps thought about changing the leader because, you know, Bill Shorten did have some elements that were unpopular. I think the jury's still out of whether Anthony Albanese would have gotten a different result. We'll, we'll never really know that. Um, but, uh, you know... Does all, this mean, know though, from... does all this mean, Sam, that Albanese now has to be worried about Shorten? No, it doesn't. But I don't think that Albanese is going to be given the luxury of six years. I mean, he's got one shot in the locker. If he can get to the next election and actually contest it for the Labor Party without something happening prior to that, mm. he's got one shot in the locker. They're not going to give him another go. Sam, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Samantha Maiden is author of Party Animals, The Secret History of a Labor Fiasco that's published by Viking. Well, that's it for the program this week. I'm Tom Switzer from RN's Between the Lines. And remember, if you've got time on your side, which you might now if you're working from home, <laughs> you can always go back and listen to the back issues going back to 2014. Uh, that's abc.net.au slash RN and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer from RN. I hope you stay safe and healthy during the coming weeks and months.